Welcome to this episode of the Mag Debrief. As usual, I'm joined by Dan Worth, international editor. Hi there. And Gronya Hallahan, recruitment editor at TES. Hello. I'm John Servers, commissioning editor. And as usual, we're going to be talking about different features in the 2nd of October issue of the magazine. Dan, let's start with you. What feature have you picked out this week? I have picked a lovely feature by Simon Creasy uh, talking about the benefits of having plants in your classroom. And it's just a really nice sort of, I'd say feel good, but I don't make that some twee. I think there's some proper sort of bit of science behind it, but it just talks about why, you know, bringing plants into the classroom is, is good for the sort of just the atmosphere of the classroom, makes pupils more content, more satisfied, and therefore presumably increases their chance of learning well, um, improves the air quality, looks nice. Um, and as long as you don't let them die, it's, it's all good. And see, what fascinated me about the piece is that the bigger the plant, the more the benefit. So I, I'm just imagining some huge rainforest style plant in the corner of the room. And it, it's bizarre because I've never really thought about the lack of plants before. But I mean, you're the one most at home in a school growing you. I mean, why aren't there plants in classrooms? Are, are they weapons? Are they too distracting? Like Simon says in his piece, the way that he, uh, he begins is with the example of the student saying, is it going to kill me? Is it poisonous? And I think that, coupled with the cleaning staff possibly leading a revolt against the school because of all the times the plant pot gets kicked over and dirt goes everywhere. And, you know, you could get around that by having plastic plants that undoes all the good points that um, Dan just mentioned about the benefits of having plants in the classroom it just won't work if you have plastic ones so I guess practicality and kids going nuts over it but she did she, um, Simon does quote some uh, Royal Horticultural Society uh, experts who do give us some tips on not killing the plants and and how to make them slightly more mm. amenable to the classroom doesn't doesn't need that yeah there's some good insights into sort of the types of plants you can use and, and you know where you can put them and, and how to look after them and i think that's the main thing isn't it really there's probably a way around it i think you know you don't have to have huge great you know tropical plants that need watering three times a day there probably are sort of ones that are quite hardy and if you put them in the right place they're not easily in reach but they just but they are in the eye line maybe somewhere that's the benefit. But again, I think it's those little touches sometimes that just elevate a school in the same way they do a home. My wife's always coming home with new plants for the house and she puts it somewhere and I sort of think, oh yeah, that does look nice. And the yeah. room just feels better for it. So I just think that is a nice sort of thing. And, you know, particularly right now, anything you could do to make school feel a bit friendlier, a bit more pleasant, you know, I mean, schools are always trying their best to do that, but a little touch like that, maybe a nice way of doing that. I think that's the thing, isn't it? You don't, you don't miss it, right? You don't, you know, you don't look at a room and say, where's the plant? But if you put a plant in the room, Suddenly you're like, well, that, as you say, that looks a little bit better. So it's, mm. it's one of those things because they're not there, you don't miss them. But if, if someone's, you know, if one teacher does bring in their favourite, um, I'm trying to think of a Latin name for a plant to look clever, but I can't. So just ended up looking Fern? stupid. Um, <laughs> Fern, is that Latin? Um, I didn't do Latin at school, as you can tell. Um, suddenly it might catch on and people think, oh, look at that classroom. I mean, that, that looks a lot more homely. And we know that um, kids feeling safe and kids feeling comfortable makes a big difference to learning and it does sort of hint at that in the piece as well as talking about the air quality benefits i mean mm. i mean what would you go for i mean not the name of the plant would you go for something big and with big leaves or you know what, what would your ideal classroom plant be do you think i love ferns ferns yeah like there's a thing in, Victor in the victorian times people became obsessed with ferns it's like fern fever and um 
they're, they're quite easy to keep, they're quite hard to kill. And um, they're, I think that, that it, and they're so green. And when you think about how grey schools can be and how you don't often get access to look out the window when you're, when you're in a class, when do you actually see green during the school day when you go out at lunch and everyone's playing football in the field? It's not quite the same thing, is it? So having nice big ferns, huge ferns all over the classroom, I'd love that. That's mm. my ideal. Fern fever, it's a good name for a character. It's a sort of, you know, femme fatale, isn't it, or something? <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, like, I don't know much about plants' names, but I, I, yeah, anything, I do agree that bigger, big is good, you know, something in the corner that really sort of dominates the room. And I think that'd be fun, wouldn't it? Because the kids could give it a name, they could... You know, it could take mm. a chance to water it. They could sort of do, you could watch it change through the year. I don't know. I'm sure this is highly impractical in the in a busy classroom, but I like the idea of having something that sort of becomes a part of the, the scenery. I think we can uh, suspend our logistical brains for a moment and indulge our mm. um, plant, plants in classrooms meandering for this. And I think, you know, I, I'd be the same. I think, you know, uh, there's lots of stuff about um, the power of nature to calm human beings and in Korea they do a lot of forest bathing where you go into the forest and you know you let nature wash over you and 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 people swear by it as sort of a mindfulness technique and it seems to be at the moment we're trying so many sort of almost academic interventions to make kids feel more at home in schools and you know very costly programs and trainings you can send yourself on when you could pop to the garden center and get yourself you know a free for two and uh mm. and you know, just give it a try. I guess budgets are tight, but you know, it gives everyone a collective thing to focus on as well. I think. Oh, definitely, yeah. And like you say, if you're going to sort of put logistics out the window, then you could have lovely sort of trailing plants coming down at the side of the classroom, and you know, different things blooming at different time of the year, so you could track how they change. And I certainly think international schools are quite lucky because of where they are in the world. Some of them probably have that in abundance on their, you know, coming into the school. They're probably hacking them back. Some of these you know, tropical plants that grow in, but you know, it, it losing always a child sounds... in, the, in, the, yeah. in, the, in the fever, for fern fever, losing children. Yeah. yeah. There's a third one this week, but um, <laughs> yeah, you do get the sense that those schools are all the better for that kind of environment they're in. And they, they take great pride in explaining their location and how they've incorporated a sort of naturalistic, you know, element to it. And, and that's what all modern design now seems to be is it incorporates nature. It doesn't block nature out. You know, you have big windows to let in natural light, you know, you bring in greenery and you want to sort of have that balance. Cause I think we realize that you can't just put up great big concrete slabs of building and people enjoy being in them. They just won't. You need to balance all that. So I think if you can do it even a little, like you said a three for two from a garden center, I think that sounds great. Are the teachers screaming at us now, Gronya? I mean, have me and Dan gone off on a flight of fancy and we're just adding one more thing for teachers to, to have to deal with or, or do you you know you be the voice of teachers here have we, have we lost it i am picturing my old classroom where there weren't enough chairs for the students to sit on and there's nowhere to put the books where would you put your plants hanging baskets hanging baskets come on we, we need to we need to find solutions not problems here um there's, there's absolutely no danger of hanging baskets spilling soil and water all over exercise books <laughs> <laughs> there must be a way you know and and there is in, on a more serious note there's an architect quoted in the piece who you know if you build these things into into buildings from the start and you plan them properly you know the, the initial research and yes it's early research does show that you know it does have a positive impact so um i think the message of this podcast is 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 stuff the logistics and go and get yourself a fur right definitely Let's go to our second feature, which is by Amy Forrester. And um, 
Gorni is going to talk about this one. So Amy's piece begins with a bit of an intro to lying, not like a how-to guide, but more about, you know, what actually constitutes a lie. And she essentially boils it down to this idea that a lie is when you deliberately mislead people. So whatever we call it, lying, fibbing, being flexible with the truth, alternative facts. Um, how common is it in schools? What's the teacher's role when it comes to students that are lying? And Amy looks at some research to do with how good you are at spotting a lie. So as a teacher, teachers often think that they're really good. And the research she looks at it shows how teachers think they're great at being able to tell when somebody's lying. And yeah, she looks at how, how true that actually is. It's a, it's a great piece. It's a really good one. I think one of the things that struck me was that she questions the validity of one seeking out liars. And then the, the hypocrisy, I guess, of well, the challenge of whether it is hypocrisy to challenge lying when teachers often lie themselves, you know, um, in, in good ways. I mean, what primary teacher does not tell a child that Santa exists? Santa, Santa does exist. Why would that? Why would they? Yeah, we're going to we're gonna have to have a chat with, uh, with, with, your, with your own parents there, Dan, and we can break the news to you that... I mean, there's good lies and bad lies, right? I mean, Amy's got a great example, which is a very serious example, where if someone comes and asks for uh, a safe place to stay and the person pursuing that person says, well, where are they? You're going to say, you're not going to tell them, you're going to lie and say you don't know. And so it's, it's this black and white nature that she plugs into in the feature, which is, okay, we see lying is bad and telling the truth is good. And actually, should we be presenting it as, a, as that sort of binary, I guess? I wrote an article about a year ago about kind of on, on this about you know should we teach young children to lie and, and it, obviously and you have first see that you think well, well no I mean parents always you know tell children off for lying but obviously life is much more complex than that as they get older there is a time when it's good to lie you know to tell someone oh no we're not doing a party for your birthday and then actually you are I mean that's lying isn't it but there's nothing sort of mean or untoward in that but it's still a skill almost to be able to do that and or what if someone tells you to lie and you need to understand why they're asking you to lie. And yeah, it's a complex thing. And in schools, and I liked in the piece, they talk about teachers and, and police detectives who you'd think would be good at spotting liars would found to not be any better than, than, than anyone else. And, and you sort of think, well, I, you know, yeah, you'd like to think that you're, you'd be good at it, but actually we're all quite good at lying because we kind of need it to make society function. So, so humans should be good at lying, but when do we lie and how? And it, it's a comp, it's all end up in these, yeah, philosophical areas. Well, there's that famous game, isn't there, where you, you say three things about yourself and only only one yeah. of them is true. And, you know, you've been out of the classroom for a while, Gornia, and I'm, I'm pinging, pinning this on to you. So, Dan, get your creative juices flowing. I mean, if Dan were to say three facts about himself and only one was true and, you know, using all your teacher skills, okay. could, yep. could you spot which one is true and which two are the fake ones? And Dan, do you need some time or off the top of your head? Um, you... Hang on, I've got, I've got one. I've got one. Uh, let me think of another one. Um, That's the true one. Yeah. <laughs> He's and... the true one. She's already using her teacher oh. skills to, to, to get in there. Oh, this is difficult. Give me, give me a couple of minutes. I'll try and think of three things that sort of marry together. Well, in the meantime, Gornia, Wayne, what did you think at the end of the piece where, you know, were you left thinking that this was a complex issue that needs to be discussed more in schools? Were you thinking that actually this is something an individual teacher has to decide for themselves or is it a whole school policy where you say you know this is our position on lying 
I was trying to think where it would fit best in the curriculum. So where exactly is the most appropriate time and in the most appropriate lesson to actually address the things that Amy's talking about. And, you know, instinctively, I obviously thought English literature lessons when characters are, are, um, are being duplicitous and when they're misleading people. And, you know, thinking about Shakespeare, we often talk about the Machiavellian characters that are trying to use, use lies and deception in order to further their there's like quest for power, but you always frame it in a, in a negative way. We don't often talk about the positive sides of lies or the times when you might need to need to lie. And I thought, well, maybe in PSHE, when you're trying to teach them strategies of how to get themselves out of tricky situations. Um, I think it might I be cross curricular though, isn't it? Because like, <laughs> you know, in geography, you've got the lie of, you know, the lies told around climate change. In history, you've got the validity of oh, sources. Okay. Um, I'm sport in PE, you've got <laughs> no geography is a whole lie. Um, sorry, Mark Enter, one of our columnists. Uh, um, but in PE, you've got cheating, which is lying, right? Yes, at base yeah. level. So, this is really but it's all, that's always framed in a negative way, isn't it? We when do we actually have the space to talk about lies and the times you need to lie? Or what are you going to talk about positive cheating then? I was thinking we're going another. <laughs> what becomes a feature of these podcasts another Gronier uh, um, faux pas moment yes positive cheating times <laughs> and cheating was okay no 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 when um when you you might say so for example when you're teaching pshe and about kids that get themselves into like when you talk about alcohol and drugs and things like they when they want to get themselves out of a situation i would always say lie Be like yeah i'd love to do that oh, but I will get home. My mum said I've got to go and do that. Just make up an excuse. And then you do encourage children to lie to get themselves out of, but you don't, that's not the time or place to start discussing, hmm, lies. So sometimes it's okay. And sometimes it's like, there's not, there's not, there's just not the space there to do it. So I think it's a really important point, but do we collectively talk about it enough, even as adults to then think about how we're going to teach it to children and, so on. You just you just listed um, all my um, excuses I use for being antisocial. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I've got to get got to get home because my my mum's cooked me dinner. <laughs> get me out of all, all social occasions. Um, Dan, have you got your have you got your challenge? Really? What do you need? Do you need two truths and a lie? It's up to you. You you tell us. You you just tell okay, us three right. and 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 let's yeah, see. If, I, I work out. Let's see if okay. Cornia can so work the, out I'm how many truths. Give you three statements about myself, and you've yeah. got to decide. Just to see what you think about each of them, okay. I've once met Prince Charles and we joked about the weather. I once won a 50 kilometer bike race. I can play all of Bohemian Rhapsody on the piano. For the benefit of um, the listeners, Dan, is, Dan was plain faced throughout. He did not blink anymore in any of those statements. His, 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 his whole demeanor, demeanor was solid. And, and now Gornia is deep in, deep in thought. I mean, this is turning into would I lie to you, but you, you know, do you want to ask questions? I mean, is this, is this a teacher trying to get a yeah, kid, you know? That's a good point. Can I ask questions? Are you you allowed um, three questions. Three questions. Um, where did you meet Prince Charles? Uh, a function in London. It was, a, it was a tech event and he was the kind of ambassador through it and he was there and I turned up with him soaking wet and it was a bit weird. I just happened to arrive, so he was leaving sort of thing and I don't know. So we had this little mini thing as we were passing in the corridor. He was an ambassador at a tech event. Well, he was an ambassador at a tech event, but it was like this big soiree event and, um, you know, the, the great and the good of the tech world and beyond were there because a lot of tech companies link up with charities, you know, um, as their sort of 
corporate social responsibility thing. And he was the, he was the charity's patron. I was invited by the tech company. Mm. I always thought Prince Charles was more of a, more of a plants in a classroom kind of ambassador. Not yeah, a- he wasn't, he wasn't there with the tech company. He was over the charity he supported. I can't remember which charity it was, but they were, and the tech company had partnered with the charity. The 50 kilometer race, bike race mm. in England. Yes. And what's the last Actually, one question? Where was it? <laughs> well, he kind of left the country, so. What if it was Belgium? I mean, Belgium, no, no chance. And what was the, your last one that you. I uh, can play all of Bohemian Rhapsody on the piano. I'm going to ask a question. What's the opening chord? Uh, G minor. I don't know the opening chord to Bohemian Rhapsody, so actually it was just. <laughs> Go on, you I got that. Rhapsody one's the true one. Why do you think that? Because when I said what's the last one, you you knew what one that one was like straight away. Well, even Whereas though I looked down at my phone. Out. Well, also, there's only three things to remember. It wasn't exactly hard. <laughs> Look at the chat back from the student. I mean, you you'd have it deten- <laughs> be in detention by now. It's so rude. <laughs> That's what I think is true. I just All right. Well, I'm true. I'm annoyed to say that you are correct. That is. So we, have we inadvertently undermined Amy's feature here by pinpointing you as a good lie detector? Or should we say that your journalism skills uh, earned over the past three years have upped your skill set in that area? Absolutely. When I was a teacher, I was dreadful at spotting when kids were lying. I'm such, <laughs> such a sucker. I was like, oh dear, your, your computer broke. That sounds dreadful. Of course you can have another. <laughs> but you're like, Where is the computer? Sucker. Is it in England? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I didn't actually win the bike race. I came second. So I sort of embellished it to kind of throw that bit of confusion in there. But you still didn't go for it. And, and it wasn't very impressive that I came second. I don't want listeners to think I'm showing off because it was quite a, a basic field. And I just happened to be quite fast. So and I'm the competitors better. were children. Yeah. That is how races tend to work. <laughs> Being quite fast. <laughs> yeah, but I just mean, it wasn't like I was some sort of... Bradley Wiggins, you know, like tearing up the road. I just happened. It was a bit of a wee. I just was like, oh, I've come second. Better than everybody else, that's all. <laughs> well, there we go. Check that feature out. Uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant read, uh, as is the plant one. And, and before we're going to go, we're going to talk a little bit about the cover feature, which is, you know, a massive piece of work again by Jess Powell, who, who wrote the Rosenshine feature earlier in the year. And this is looking at the battle in the early years between what is perceived to be a push to, to formalize the early years. Um, and that push to formalize the early years is being sort of carried, if you like, by cognitive science, findings from cognitive science. And in the fight back from the early years practitioners, they are sort of saying, well, actually this stuff, a lot of this stuff isn't developmentally appropriate. You mean your, your, um, prioritizing science from cognitive science and we need to also look at the developmental science and Jess has done an incredible job picking that apart and finding out exactly what's going on and I think it's worth saying that the early years is such a focus because we have a system that's set up that needs you know consecutive progress right so every year we need to we need to be better than the one before and so you know you have this way of thinking and, 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 and I guess a policy system now which says in the early years well we need to get these kids to a level where they can access the curriculum or their school ready 
and and that is highly problematic on its own but this is being played out now as as a fight for sort of pedagogy in the early years and i think where jess has done a really good job is drawing out those arguments finding out where the evidence base is finding out what the practitioners are saying and the conclusions of that are you know we need to have more respect for the early years you know we we, we keep telling everyone how important it is but we we don't listen to the to the sector enough and we don't you know these are the guys doing it every day and and who've honed their expertise and, and we're just not paying enough attention to them and I, that was the sense i got out of that feature i don't know about the other two you know dan and Gorney, what you thought about you know what's the take-home message from that feature i mean it's really interesting to to read especially when um when you think about the huge reaction that there was to um, the bold beginnings framework and just touches upon that in the, the feature. I remember I got myself into an argument with a famous children's author who insisted on quote tweet, tweeting every reply I made to him when we were discussing bold beginnings. Um, I thought it's, it's just quite sensible. I didn't really see any, any problem with it. Um, but when you speak to people who work in EYFS, then not everybody, not everybody has the same opinion. I think that's a really important point to make. So often people talk about the people that work in EYFS as if they're just one big mass, like they all have one single mind and they all share the same opinions. And just like in primary and secondary, teachers all have their own approaches and their own preferences when it comes to teaching. Um, I thought Claire Seeley's comments were really pertinent, especially when she said um, about play, that there's also social, physical and communicative skills that underpin the academic and they are, that are gained through play. They're not just nice to have. For example, writing is a very physical activity. It requires good muscular development and sort of tying these two different areas together. Yet we're going to teach things. We're going to teach things in a, a more uh, traditional way, like teaching how to write. But you've got to have the play to go along with it. They're not two separate things. And to think about them as two totally different areas is, is reductive. It's not it's not helpful thing at all how about you Dan mm, yeah it's, there's so many interesting bits in this feature and I like for example there's just the one bit where Jess sort of makes the point or she's summing up a thing someone else is saying which is like cognitive science is this grand sounding term and cognitive scientists say x you know will sound impressive and it's like but cognitive science itself is a huge field and it's not like you can just lump all those scientists that to one and they all have the same view of something so when we use that, that when that's used as a, a reason that something should be done it, it's such an easy way of making something sound impressive but it's like it's far more complex than that and of course it is and and that idea again exactly what you said they're growing about play and what play delivers i mean again it seems almost obvious it's like well of course young people's you know very young children's play is not just it's not meaningless it's not silly it, it's fundamental to their development and it's part of education and then like you said both developing muscle skills and understanding collaboration and why certain things, what happens when you do something and it happens, but then you try it again and it doesn't happen. And what was, what was the thing that you changed that meant it didn't happen. And so obviously that balance between how do we get them to start becoming learners whilst having a fun childhood is not, they're not mutually exclusive. You know, they can be, they often, they actually work really closely together. And the feature really does a good job of explaining how we've ended up in a situation where those two things are seem to be as if they're at war with each other, but they're not, they just sort of become, it's like, well, you have to, I think that's the point just makes the end, isn't it? Or the, sort of situation is such that you have to you pick what you have got to pick a side because if you don't it's like you're giving the other side movement into your into your territory and that's not that's not a great place to be for something so important 
And I like the way she really tackled that stereotype of, oh, they just play, like they're just playing. Like so mm. rarely would that ever be happening in a classroom. I don't think any teacher just lets their kid kids run run right. There's always very organized, very well thought out activities where there there are there is play, but there is learning that's happening alongside that play. Mm. I think one of the, the things that come out of it as well is the, this need to measure and and mm. quite a lot of the criticism of play and what play brings and, and some of the other sort of developmental side of, of BYFS is that we, we don't like our measurements being messed with. We don't like it being pointed out that a four-year-old and a three-year-old are going to be a long way away from each other and a four-year-old and a five-year-old are going to be a long way from each other and how that might skew our data. And we also don't like the fact that we, we these soft skills are, I hate that phrase because it's demeaning, but they are very difficult to measure. And so, you know, there's this need the whole computational analogy around cog science is, you know, we can, we can pattern this brain, we can, we can mechanize it. It hits this wall at EYFS because, you know, those kids and anyone with a kid of that age knows that their brains don't work that way. (laughs) You know, self-regulation is a huge, huge issue. Uh, You know, how many times have I told my, my son who's five to get dressed? And I, I, I don't understand how he doesn't that that message doesn't go in but it doesn't and and there's no matter you can't do anything to help that that's that's something that will develop over experience and I can see why you know why why it's such a trouble to to for people who don't work with that phase to understand that but Mm. I think we just have to ask the sector you know why is this a barrier and I think Nikki Clement says something really good in, in the piece when she's saying you know we do use cog size stuff but we also use this stuff. And if you just spoke to us about it, we'd tell you the problems. We'd tell you why that might not work with our, with our cohort. And we can f- maybe find a way of making it work rather than having this dictatorial approach. Mm. But it's interesting, isn't it, that that is like that, that people who don't work in that sector sort of, or the people who do work in that sector feel the need to have to say that because, you know, I, d- I don't have children, but I've got a couple of younger nieces and you know, other things and, and, you know, just world experience. You know, yeah, like you said, young children, don't follow the rules that you can't quantify them. You can't set them a test and understand where they're at because they're just too young for that. So you have to kind of let them lead a bit and, and wait, have them term it. And if play is one way of doing that, then that's what you need to do. And it's not dismissing proper cognitive psychology or science. It's just saying sometimes play is, and maybe the word play is the problem, but that's what they need to do. I think you hit the nail on the head there. And that's what some of the academics are saying now is that actually play is the problem because the word is mm. because when the scientists are talking about discovery, learning and play, they're often thought and thinking of a very extreme end of the spectrum where a child literally leads their own learning. Whereas mm. what actually happens in the vast majority of settings is a very structured, child-led but adult-structured adult mm. environment. Mm. And uh, I think, you know, you read the reports say play is the most inefficient route to learning. You think, which play? And we've had a piece uh, from Sarah Barker um the pedal center and we you know even Edie Hirsch admitted this in a podcast a couple of weeks ago is that we get these caricatures of play and it's really creating too much noise around the debate because no one's defining their terms mm. no one wants to sometimes because it's too ambiguous and it is that classic oh I went to school so I know about school and even if you're a teacher who doesn't work in EYFS you think back to your own time when you were in in reception and foundation classes and you might think oh I did all day was just play in the sand pits you don't you don't understand all the other stuff that happened alongside that because you only experienced it as a child and yeah it's um 
play is so so misunderstood it's not it's not just kids freewheeling around and mm. crashing into Maybe they need to give it a, a, like a more of a corporate buzz phrase like blue sky thinking or something. And that way people <laughs> know what they mean. Because, I mean, that's what that is in, in the corporate world, isn't it? It's, that's play. It's a chance to have ideas. At, but it's all within this framework of we need to develop a new idea. Let's, let's blue sky thinking, guys. And any idea goes. That's like adult play, isn't it, in the office? But we don't yeah, call yeah. it play. We call it blue sky thinking. So maybe that's what they need to do, give it some horrible corporate buzz phrase. Mm-hmm. And then everyone will know what they're talking about. Indeed. I think it's, it's worth... I was giving a shout out to the EYFS practitioners here and saying, you know, it may seem a little skewed and we've been a bit harsh on everyone else, but I think actually they need their voices amplified. And I think that's a key takeaway from the feature is that, you know, if we want to have a sensible debate and it is, if it is as as important as we all say it is at that level, then why don't we talk to the people who do it day in, day out and and take them seriously? So. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a great issue. Um, there's loads, loads more in it. And um, we will see you next week. And hopefully we might even have another lie detector test because that was fun. So we'll, we'll see. Oh, how yeah, we someone go. else let's think of, Gronia, you think of three more things and I'll see if I can work them out next week. Okay, that's a promise. <laughs> let's, see if, let's see if Dan can, can score, score um, a perfect result like you did this week, Gronia. Um, sure. Now we will see you next week. Cheers. Bye. Bye.